Welcome to Famous People You've Never Heard Of, the podcast brought to you by Blue Fire Theatre Company. Each week, Lottie, Linda or Steve will guide you through the centuries to shine the spotlight once again on entertainers the world has forgotten. Thank you so much for joining us as we chat to our fabulous guests and find out more about these forgotten superstars of history. If you enjoy the podcast, do please rate, review and most importantly, subscribe so that you never miss an episode and more people find out about us. And now, let us delay no longer in introducing you to a famous person you've never heard of. Today's episode is all about Amanda Ira Aldridge. I'll be chatting to Stephen Bourne, the writer who's made it his mission to get Amanda's name back on the map. And also we'll hear from Patricia Hammond, who's recently recorded some of Amanda's songs. Today, we've got the wonderful Stephen Bourne, who is going to talk to us about a lady from a theatrical dynasty that became quite musical. Um, so, Stephen, welcome very much to famous people you've never heard of. It's lovely to have you here. And do, do you want to sort of kick off by just telling everybody a little bit about you, and then we can uh, go on and discuss the fantastic Amanda? Uh, thank you. Yes, I, uh, just very briefly, I've been writing black British history books for 30 years. This year is my 30th anniversary. I started in 1991 publishing, getting books published on the subject. And and I, and really what has partly motivated me is the, the dominance of African-Americans in our school curriculum. So for many, many years now, we've been teaching young people in Britain about Dr. Martin Luther King and African-American civil rights movement and Rosa Parks and the bus boycott at the expense of our own Black British historical figures. And so in the course of my research, uh, not everything that I've uncovered has been published in a book. There's masses of stuff that, that I haven't yet put into the public domain. But I have struggled a bit with Amanda Ira Aldridge because of the lack of interest in Black British women composers, which I find extraordinary um, and very worrying and very disappointing. So the more I can do to spread the word about her in particular, um, I'm happy to do so. How did you happen upon her? I can't remember. I mean, it's almost like I've always known about her, but always been intrigued by her because of, there was so little knowledge of her. Her father, Ira Aldrich, was a famous um, Shakespearean actor, an African-American Shakespearean actor in the Victorian era. So I read about him way back when I was a teenager in the 1970s, when I started reading what little bits of information were around in books. And there was a chapter about him, for example, in Florin Shylon's book, Black People in Britain, um, about the early kind of black historical figures in Britain. So that's probably where I was introduced to Ira, but it was only later on that I discovered that he had 
as you say, a kind of dynasty of children who, who didn't take to the theatrical stage as actors, but were very much involved and encouraged to be involved in music, uh, music, um, which they pursued, uh, three of them, uh, through their mother, their, their, their white Swedish mother. Um, after Ira died, the children were very young. Amanda was just a baby when Ira died in 1867. Uh, and so she didn't know him, but obviously she learned a great deal about him from, from her mother. And, and she took his name as well, didn't she? And I, I read somewhere that that was a, a conscious thing that she did rather than actually being christened Amanda Ira Aldridge. I remember rightly, I do have a copy of her birth certificate from 1866, and I'm sure it says Amanda Christine Elizabeth. Um, I'd have to go and check it to be specific, but no, she later added the name Ira um, to her own professional, well, not her professional name, but her her public name, um, Amanda Ira Aldridge. She had two professional names. This is what's a bit confusing because as a composer, she used the name Montague Ring. So when started researching Amanda, I had to remember to look at both names, Amanda Ira Aldridge and Montague Ring. But she apparently said that was to separate her composing music from her teaching music um, in, in the early days, not necessarily because women composers had to use a male pseudonym. But that might also have been the case. She might not have just clarified that because in those very early days, uh, women composers in Britain particularly had to use male pseudonyms. So it's been assumed that that's why Amanda used the name Montague Ring to get her music published. But she said it was because she wanted to differentiate the two careers that she had. And now we will hear from Patricia Hammond. So I first encountered Amanda Aldridge as Montague Ring in my sheet music collection because when I was a child I collected sheet music. I loved anything old and anything old that I could sing and play was also amazing. And um, I just envisaged this this Victorian fellow with a huge moustache and it was only later that I connected Montague Ring, quote-unquote, with Amanda Aldridge and also with... Ira Aldridge, her father, who I also knew about but didn't know the connection, and also with her sister, Lorana, who with her near debut at um, Bayreuth. Um, And anyway, it was just thrilling to find that connection. She started as a singer, didn't she? And then she she gave that up to to teach. And uh, she had quite an, an illustrious set of pupils as well. I believe Amanda was one of the first students at the Royal College of Music in Kensington. She certainly went there to train as a singer. Her sister, Lorana Aldridge, was also a contralto, a singer. And they both performed on the sort of classical music concerts on on the concert platform and were both very both individually and together very successful 
Uh, but unfortunately, as time moved on, I mean, I think Amanda was a professional singer for about 20 years. She suffered a bout of laryngitis and sadly lost her singing voice. But she was early on um, advised uh, by one of her tutors to learn about music theory. She said, whenever, if you ever did lose your singing voice or it deteriorated, you could teach music, you could teach singing voice. And Amanda followed that advice um, very seriously. And then when she, she lost her singing voice and, and also her singing career on, on the concert platform, she then not only turned her attention to composing music, because she, she is, in my estimation, one of the most important Br- British women composers of her time. She started at the late Edwardian era, composed music all through the First World War period, into the 1920s. She was very prolific um, and very popular using the pseudonym Montague Ring. She was very popular, particularly in middle-class households who would buy her music sheets and play her, her music um, around the piano in their parlours. And, and, and that's how Amanda established two different careers post her singing career. When that ended, she became a voice teacher and a composer. Again, one of the most heartbreaking things for me about Amanda is that very little of her work was professionally recorded. And so if you look her up on Amazon, for example, CDs, there's nothing. I found some very rare recordings that were made of her, some of her music, African dances and some of that that music in the BBC music library many 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 years ago um they and and it, it's just very sad that, that that her music has not been properly acknowledged and recorded in this country it's extraordinary so one does need to think about that the music sheets do exist i have quite a few of her original music sheets, the published ones in my collection, the Royal College of Music Archive have more or less her her output. So the music exists. It's just why is it taking so long? They see they rec- as I said earlier, they 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 recognise the African Americans. So Florence Price has been all over Radio Four, and rightly so. There's now a CD out of some of her music. You know, the African Americans get all the attention. And there's even one sort of somebody who who I, I shan't name. They didn't mean it in any in any, but they refer to Amanda Ira Aldridge as African American because her father was African American. But they overlooked the fact that Amanda was born here in this country in South Norwood, and her father became a British subject. He took up British citizenship. So and her mother was Swedish. And her mother was Swedish. Absolutely. Uh, but again, a, a British subject. And so it, it, it's very frustrating that, you know, you have to be African-American to be acceptable and to be accepted. And to and, and if you're a woman composer, to be remembered and to have your music recorded, even though it's a long time after you've died. I think well, it's still happen- difficult for women composers Absolutely. now, isn't it? 
accept have everything else. So you see, Amanda is a, is a, is a prime example of this this prejudice that still, as you say, still exists to this day. Let's see if we can do something about it. And musicians listening out there, get your mitts on the music and get it recorded. Yes. I'd love to hear it. I'd, I would. I'd love to hear some of it. What fragments have been recorded um, are absolutely beautiful, exquisite music. And a lot of it was used as accompaniments to silent films. A lot of her music was used, Montague Ring's music was used as accompaniment for silent films until the silent film era ended in the late sort of 1920s. So that's how highly regarded she was in, a, in her day and then forgotten. Did she not teach, apart from just singing, she, she's taught elocution as well, I think, didn't she? She, she became a very highly regarded um, voice teacher in the 1920s, very much um, with the upper classes, ladies, um, from those sort of upper class backgrounds would go to her for for elocution lessons and and she was also a singing teacher but she she was a voice teacher and very apparently very versatile she had a studio in in london near oxford street um the weeks studio near oxford street and she would travel there from her home uh she lived at various places but places like kensington and Chiswick and um and she would travel right up until her 80s when she was in her 80s she was still teaching voice in the 1940s and early 50s and among the most celebrated in terms of show business entertainment music world uh, the most celebrated people that went to her were Paul people like Paul Robeson Paul Robeson was here in the 1920s with his wife, Eslanda. They met Amanda. Amanda would tell them about her father, Ira Aldridge, because Paul Robeson being the, the new up-and-coming black theatrical uh, actor in Britain at that time, in the 1920s, was keen to play Othello, but but didn't have that kind of Shakespearean background. So Amanda would tell him about about. Ira's achievements in England in the Victorian era and she then when he did finally get cast as Othello at the Savoy Theatre in 1930 she did give him voice lessons she gave Paul Robeson voice lessons and as Lander did his wife who wrote a lot of letters back home to America because they lived here they made London their home for for a number of years until the war broke out, Eslanda would write back to family and friends in America. And and she did describe Amanda in one of her letters as this sweet, lovely, warm, friendly lady who has helped Paul enormously with his, his voice projection. Because in those days, you see, black actors couldn't get the training or the access to stage schools, uh, drama schools that they have now, then it, a lot of them. And, uh, and another one was Ida Shepley. Uh, Ida Shepley was born in, uh, in England in 1908. So she was from Nantwich in Cheshire. And when she was in her 30s, sorry, in her 20s, 
she went to Amanda for voice lessons and she became a very popular singer um, and also an actress making her dramatic debut at the with the Unity Theatre in a Eugene O'Neill play in 1946. So they had this voice training and would go out into the world and expand their repertoire. Others included, other students of Amanda included Earl Cameron, who I actually interviewed in person way back in 1997. He told me an awful lot about her because he couldn't get, he was from Bermuda, but also was pursuing a stage career as an actor, but couldn't get into stage school. So Ida Shepley, who was a friend of his, said, go to Amanda. And he went to her for elocution lessons because he had to learn how to project on stage. And then finally, in the 1950s, the wonderful Muriel Smith, who was an African-American classical singer, Muriel Smith created the role of Carmen Jones on Broadway in 1943. And she was a trained opera singer in America but obviously there were no openings for opera singers but she came to London and and Muriel Smith from about 1949 started performing on the London stage in reviews as Bloody Mary in South Pacific in 1951 at Drury Lane as Lady Tiang in The King and I at Drury Lane in 1953 and finally as Carmen Bizet's Carmen at Covent Garden in 1950. The real one. <laughs> the real one. So she got to be probably the first, um, one of the few black opera singers to sing both Carmen Jones on stage and Carmen at Covent Garden. And she was going to, to Amanda for, for, for lessons. And in 1954, they appeared on BBC television together. Oh, um, how lovely. Yeah, Amanda was interviewed, Muriel sang one of her songs on BBC television. So Amanda, one of Amanda's songs. One of Amanda's um, com- compositions. And that was in 1954. BBC television doesn't exist. It was all live, live television. And so Amanda made her television debut, I think she was about 87 at the time, which is incredible. That's amazing. I love amazing, her. These are amazing <laughs> people that learned an awful lot. Um, and of course, just to finish off on Muriel Smith, Muriel then in 1958, we all know her glorious voice because she sang Bally High in the film version of South Pacific. She that dubbed, was Muriel Smith. That was the, the Muriel Smith post working with Amanda Ira Aldridge. She went to Hollywood to ghost. She was a ghost singer because uh, uh, the actress, who Juanita Hall, who played the role on screen, her voice had deteriorated. So they brought Muriel in. And it's a wonderful recording. And I mean, and a testament to Amanda's um, influence, I like to think. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's nice. She's, she's still here with us. That's good. Yes, on CD. <laughs> on yeah, the, on uh, CD. The South Pacific CD, <laughs> which I yeah. Uh, I have a copy of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. So, Amanda, as, as well as all these um, exciting dramatic things that she did, did, did she not spend sort of quite some time nursing her sister, who was a very famous opera singer, but not for very long? Yes. Uh, one of the sad aspects of Amanda's private life was that she she nursed both her mother 
and her sister. They were both very uh, sickly kind of people. Lorana had had uh, a successful career as a concert singer um, on the classical in classical music, like a, a Wagner, she would sing their, his songs. And, and she was very well known and very well established and respected. Um, she had great success at some point in Germany, way, way back, I think, in the, in the late Victorian era, but sadly suffered from rheumatism and, and before just before the First World War, um, was taken very ill with rheumatism and, and lost her career. I mean, her career ended. The mother died, the Swedish mother, Paulina, uh, died in 1915 during the First World War. Lorana suffered for many years with rheumatism and was bedridden, I believe. And Amanda took great care of her until 1932, when Lorana tragically committed suicide um, because she couldn't cope with the pain that she was suffering. Um, but Amanda just soldiered on doing the work that she did, composing, teaching, uh, a quite a remarkable uh, character. She's really stoic lady, wasn't she? She yeah. just made the best of whatever life threw at her, really. She did. She was a, a real, um, as I say, tough, um, resilient person. I mean, she lived to be 89, which is extraordinary. And I think just going back a... A bit, um, which I think is quite nice. The the Othello connection with Robeson. Um, what the, in the article that I I read that you you wrote? Um, I'll dig it out for people if they, they want to see it. Put it on the on the show notes. Um, the Madge Kendall was a teacher of Amanda's, and Madge Kendall had been Desdemona to Ira Aldridge's Othello. I think later known as Dame Madge Kendall. But before she, she received her damehood, she was indeed Desdemona to Ira Aldridge's Othello in, in London um, during the Victorian era. And then later, I think she was teaching, had a teaching post at the Royal College of Music where she recognised Amanda and spoke to her and they became great friends. And so Amanda did learn more about her father from Madge. And, and, and obviously Madge Kendall was a great influence on her. But she had a lot of connections like that. I'm not very good at remembering all the names, but certainly when I did the, the research on Amanda, she was connected to a lot of what were then very prominent, important people in the world of music, in the world of drama. So she's very well connected and very well known. But well, as, as Earl Cameron pointed out, when he knew her from about 1946, 47 onwards, she wasn't wealthy. She lived in a beautiful home. She had a, her own home and she had portraits of her father, Ira, and, and lots of memorabilia about him and her own career. But she said she wasn't a wealthy woman, uh, but she was a very kind, considerate, um, and one, a wonderful teacher that's that's quite sad really I mean not that you know wealth is the be all and end all of everything but you think you know she's from such an illustrious family mm. and she had a really successful teaching career and she had all the composing and they were using that music for the silent movies you'd think wouldn't you that it would have actually 
brought in a lot more than it obviously did. But I suppose, again, no, that, that, nothing changes. No money in the arts, is there? Absolutely. That's what Earl Cameron said. He, he found it extraordinary when he learned more and more about her father, particularly, and about Amanda's life, that she wasn't in a better position financially, which is why she kept working into the 1950s, almost up until she died in 1956. Um, again, the great sadness for me is, apart from the fact that we can't access her music, uh, recorded music, because it hasn't been recorded, in 1956, she died at the age of 89 and was buried. I knew that she'd been buried in the variety artist section of Stratton Park Cemetery. It took me a while to get around to visiting the cemetery to search for her grave. Finding the plot on the map that they gave me was, was, was easy um, because it's marked. There's a number, there's a plot, you know, you go to the plot. And there was this path that I went down and there were some gravestones that were in this area, this sort of green area where obviously a lot of headstones have been removed, but there were some. So I was able to identify roughly where she was, but there is no memorial to her. There is no headstone. And it's another shock to, to discover that this great British woman composer daughter of the great Ira Aldridge. I mean, Ira Aldridge does have an English heritage blue plaque. I think she should have one as well. Ira Aldridge does now have um, his portrait at the Old Vic Theatre, because I attended that unveiling. Earl Cameron did the honours, um, and he unveiled this. I think it was about 2004. But there is, there is nothing, no memorial no headstone for Amanda. But when I was searching for the actual plot, I couldn't find the actual plot where she is because it, it's just a green area. But as I was looking, I saw this single daisy, this one little daisy flower poking out from, from the overgrown like the grass. And I thought, okay, Amanda, that's you. <laughs> that's you. <laughs> no, seriously, I believe that. That's I know nice. it's a bit... A bit weird just would sound a bit weird to some people but I believe stuff like that there's a reason for that happening so I photographed and thought that's where more or less where your plot is and I was pretty much as close to it as you could get um but there should be a memorial to her somewhere but I think the other campaign we need to start is for English heritage to to honor her I, th I think they should I mean she was an absolutely remarkable woman so what? it's it's a a pleasure to to actually bring her story out a little bit and so hopefully people will want to go in and find out a little more. Once more, we hear from Patricia Hammond. Recording her for the first time, I, uh, I the first thing I recorded was when a coloured lady saunters down the street, which is quite problematic because of the, the word, the term coloured, but I really wanted to record it because um, it was her voice and because she she wrote the words and because at that time in the 1910s that was the most uh, progressive inclusive uh, term that you that you could have it had, had yet to be associated with the Jim Crow laws and with apartheid and all that so it was it was actually a very positive term 
and the song itself is incredibly positive. Apart from the work that you've done, Stephen, are, are there any other books that she featured in? Or Not really. I mean, she has entries in one or two encyclopedias of women composers. I have written about her for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, but you have to have a subscription in order to access that information. It was only recently that, although I've been researching her work, her life and her career for many, many years. It was only recently that I was able to get quite a substantial feature in a magazine called The Historian, the magazine of the Historical Association, which is an illustrated feature, which was a joy to, to write. In a lot of the substantial biographies of Ira Aldridge, and there are quite a few now, she's barely mentioned. And it, some of this, the experts on Ira Aldridge just completely miss her out but it's the same with without going off on a tangent it's exactly the same situation I've discovered with Samuel Coleridge Taylor his daughter Avril Coleridge Taylor Um, we should do another interview about her because that is another extraordinary story but she was at the same rough not the same age as as she was much younger than Amanda but they were composing music pretty much in the same period Um, and it's shocking that these two women of colour, if you like, British-born and both composers are not well-known. But I'm I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you've taken an interest as well because it helps to broaden, hopefully, the the information. Well, and you you never know who might be tuned in who might have a little bit more information, another little nugget to throw in. One thing that's very... Um, sad. I did propose about two years ago. I went. I have a friend who has an independent radio company, and and she has won. Um, um, what's that f- famous award they give to radio people? The, the Sony Awards. Oh yeah, she's a Sony yes. Award winner. And so I went to Sue and I said, "Let's." And she asked me for like for ideas, and I came up with this brilliant idea for Radio Three feature, which would acknowledge Amanda and Avril Coleridge-Taylor and other women of colour who were British-born and around at that time in music, not necessarily composers, but in music. And Radio 3 turned it down. Um, And we were, like, really upset. And I made a complaint to the head of Radio 3. I thought, why not? Got nothing to lose. This is the hoops you have to go through. So he called us in to meet him and the guy at Radio 3 who had turned us down. <laughs> and it was like having teeth pulled. It's like It was like talking to a brick wall. You know, th- these people just don't connect. And then, sort of, so nothing happened. Nothing happened as a result of that meeting. And then Black Lives Matter happened. And people keep saying to me, go back to them, go back to them. But uh, now that Black Lives Matter movement has happened, and I just can't, you know summon up the energy to go back to Radio 3 and try it all over again. Because the whole commissioning process at Radio 3, uh, indeed at BBC Radio, is very complicated. It's um, exhausting. And, and exa- absolutely exhausting. And also exhausting, but great if you get commissioned. 
But when you get something like this turned down, and now they're all over Florence Price, you know, like a rash. <laughs> it's like she had a whole week <laughs> on, radio, on Radio 3, which was wonderful, good for Florence Price, and I'm really pleased about that. Fantastic music. But, you know, it's, again, this discrimination against the Black British. There's this resistance and this discrimination that goes on, this lack of connection more than anything. Um, of understanding and I, I think something will be done on Radio 3 with Amanda Ira Aldridge and I really hope there will I've just got a horrible feeling it won't be me but but if someone else does it without my consultation or knowledge then so be it I've put stuff in the public domain she's there for people to learn about but but at least I'm on on this. <laughs> well, there you are. We can't give you Radio Three, but we can give well, no, you this is, a this podcast. Is not Radio Three, because this will probably reach the people that I want to reach. <laughs> well, that's that's my plan. And yeah, uh, and if you're we'll serious, send a link to, to them and see what happens. <laughs> see what they say. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That will really upset them. Clog up their inbox. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, please come back and let's talk about Avril Colgate. Avril Colgate, well. absolutely. I've yeah. got some wonderful things, stories to tell you about her as well. That that that'll be another interview. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you very, very much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you and finding out a bit more about Amanda, who I I think I would have quite liked. I might have been a bit scared of her because I think she was a bit pedantic. No, no. Earl said she she was very sweet, lovely, friendly, warm lady. I mean, she she you, you would never be afraid of her from what I've read the descriptions I've read of her. And I think that's how she would probably want to be remembered as well as all wonderful musical achievements that she, she had. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you. I was thrilled to record and to film uh, Azalea and Little Missy Cakewalk at the Blackheath Clarendon during the, the COVID lockdown it was amazing to have a space to get together with friends and give voice to this wonderful, wonderful musician and, and composer and lyricist. We had a great, a great time. And Matt brought along his zither banjo, which was from the time. And in fact, there was a banjo part um, with some of the music from the time. And it was a kind of, it's a kind of a, a um, it's a uh, parlor kind of a banjo from the time, which was used a lot in music hall. In fact, in the 1890s, you were just as likely to find a zither banjo in a parlor as you were to find a piano. And so it was a wonderful chance to bring the kind of fun and fresh jaunty sort of exotic voice of the Edwardians which was always all about exoticism discovering new things um, kind of in their own way world music um, and the sounds of the time the, the upright piano and the zither banjo together and also uh, well of course um, Amanda Aldridge's voice herself and she given her background and given her amazing outward-looking um, attitude was just the perfect person to bring out these Edwardian uh, 
others of these Edwardian other kind of um, exotic understanding of, of, of the world and her own heritage and also I believe there is some sort of voice coming from the stage of the day and per perhaps particularly the visit not so long before she wrote these of the company that came along um, the first it was the first African-American um, first black musical um, both produced and performed composed called Indahomi and I think you can hear some of that element in the in this music it's it's all about the other it's all about exoticism but also it's fun for listening to famous people you've never heard of. If you've enjoyed this week's podcast and would like to find out more, do take a look at the show notes where you'll find further information and reading material, as well as a transcription of today's episode. If you like what we do and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash theatre. Or, if you prefer to keep us going with a caffeine fix, you can do so at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash theatre. We really appreciate any support you can give to help keep the show on the road. And we'd also love it if you give the show a rate and a review. It really helps us to remain visible out there. And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, where we'd love to see you.